Jesus is really clear whose side he's on, and it's the side of the marginalized. So when we have a culture that says, oh, Jesus doesn't pick sides, that's another blinking sign, another red flag that like, we've actually drifted pretty far from the scriptures at that point. Welcome to The Collective Table, the ultimate female perspective on Jesus, justice, and joy, with your hosts, Chelsea Simon, Dana Black, and Claire Watson. We're so glad that you're here for this seventh season called the Sermon Podcast Hour. During this season, Chelsea, Claire, and I are going to interview some of our favorite preachers about a sermon they've given. These sermons will be following the lectionary calendar from Epiphany all the way until Easter. In the various episodes, not only will you hear clips from the sermon, you will also get to hear the follow-up conversation with the preacher. Each preacher brings their own unique experiences, interpretations, and preaching styles. Our hope is to provide a well-rounded and expansive view of the scriptures, God, and ourselves. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Reverend Claire here. Welcome back to another episode of the Collective Table Season 7 Sermon Podcast Hour. Today, Reverend Chelsea and I had the opportunity to sit down with Reverend Jonah Overton, who is the lead pastor at Zhao MKE Church in Milwaukee. It's a great conversation. We talk about a sermon that they gave on Palm Sunday back in 2019. And Jonah's passion for scripture and liberation and justice really comes through both in their sermon and in our conversation. So if you haven't already, I encourage you to pause this episode, go to our show notes, and listen to the sermon before you listen to our podcast conversation, which will be about the sermon. A little bit about Jonah. As I said, Jonah is so passionate about liberation and justice and scripture They are so passionate that they started two podcasts, which we will link in the show notes, Jonah and the Peacock and the Christian Queries. Fun fact, Jonah is actually married to Cameron, who not only pastors Zhao MKE Church with them, but Cameron was on our season Songs of Summer just a little less than a year ago. So we'll also link that episode in our show notes. I'm really looking forward to you all hearing this conversation. So let's dive in. Welcome, Collective Table listeners. We're so excited to be with you during Holy Week when this sermon and this episode come out. Hopefully you've all had a chance to listen to our guest, uh, Reverend Jonah Overton. Jonah, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to meet you and be with you today. Thank you so much for having me. And actually, this is now a family affair. A couple seasons ago on our Songs of Summer season, we got to talk with your partner, Cameron. And so we're just really getting the whole picture here with having you here, too. So we're, we're grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you want her on, my, uh, my year and a half year old would love to come babble with you. So you can round it out. Well, let's maybe start the conversation with a little bit of background about Zhao Church, where you're located, kind of what's the history of that community? Who are you preaching to? 
kind of just give us like set the stage for us a little bit. Zao is a church plant started in the last few years. And uh, really, it comes out of a desire that I had to go to church. I am an out queer and trans person. I'm deeply rooted in my faith and in the Jesus tradition. And I also the expression that my faith has taken uh, most publicly is of justice work for liberation. And there really weren't a whole lot of places that I felt I could go to church and be my fullest self, particularly because of my background. You know, I was raised in a progressive mainline denomination, but I really came of age spiritually among non-denom conservative evangelicals. And while I was able to kind of compartmentalize a lot about who I was at that time and lean on some other more progressive theological traditions to make sense of my community, it culturally, like, that's who I am. I'm an evangelical. And so I really was, you know, struggling saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm a queer and trans, non-binary, radical leftist organizer, evangelical Christian on fire for Jesus. Like, where do I fit in? You know, just a little shout out to those of you for whom Christianese uh, is really triggering. Hey, I see you. Um, and for people for whom that's like a language that recalls communities of connection. That was the that was the tension that I was living in, where those spaces that were speaking my language were the places that were in some ways most hurtful, but also the places that had introduced me to um, the life-changing love of God. And so I, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do. In my justice work, I was working with a lot of congregations in my home city, Chicago. I had relationships working on issues of justice with dozens and dozens of congregations, but didn't feel like any one of them was quite the right fit until I met a church plant. And there, I had this kind of revelation experience of like, oh, okay, so God is actually doing new things in the world. And one of the ways to serve the church is to plant and cultivate new communities that might be able to grow into new expressions of understanding the tradition more quickly, more efficiently than established churches. Because, you know, I knew that there were churches that were on their way to understanding um, what God was doing in the world through people like me, but it was going to take a long time and there was going to be a lot of collateral damage in the meantime. And I just like wasn't up for it. On the other hand, you know, if you can gather people who are embodying those expressions of God's newness and queerness and transness and start something from scratch, you're going to get a very different kind of community. And so ultimately, I felt called in to be a part of that process to say, you know, if there's no place for me in the church, then maybe um, maybe that's an invitation to build that place. The stars aligned. God made the path towards Milwaukee to be the place to do that. Um, But that meant that A few years ago, I moved to Milwaukee with the names and phone numbers of two people and the support of my denomination to start a church from scratch. And so I gathered folks mostly by, you know, crashing birthday parties and poetry readings and baseball games and just like talking to strangers and figuring out who else was called into this. We started meeting in my living room and then meeting in a local theater. And now we have finally kind of settled into a historic United Methodist Church building in Milwaukee, right across from um, a university campus. And it's been a really incredible journey. Yeah. Tell us more about what Zao Church looks like now in terms of who's a part of this church. What does your ministry look like? Very early on in moving to Milwaukee, I met my my partner and now husband, Cameron. He is a Black, queer, and trans man who has had been in Milwaukee for years prior to me, kind of in the church scene and had been doing some of that more reform work, but had been coming against these institutional barriers where he could only lead so far as a queer and trans person before, you know, before getting kicked out or pushed down or um, undermined in some way. And so when I met him, I was like, wow, you were really called to be a church planter. You're 
gifted and your opportunities have been just completely taken from you through systemic sin. And so I, I think we were able to kind of collaborate from the beginning and and build something together. He's now like officially part of the staff. So the staff being him and me. So, you know, it's not, you know, we're not like a huge operation here, but one of the common experiences of church planters is that the community tends to look like demographically look like it's planters. So, you know, I'm white, I'm non-binary, I'm a millennial. I'm very like queer, not only in my myself and my orientation, but also my kind of politics and my views. And so uh, you kind of mix that with who Cameron is and we end up with a very young, very queer, very politically engaged community. Um, we have a lot of multiracial families that are kind of going through some similar experiences to our multiracial family. And yeah, we have kind of a mix of folks who are former evangelicals, like both Cameron and I, who are former Catholics, which is just a very common experience in Wisconsin. You throw in a little Wisconsin Lutheran there too, some very, very conservative um, mainline Lutheran folks. And then a handful of folks who have had no kind of real spiritual um, or religious upbringing who are looking for something new. There's some parlance in church planting, um, bored, burned, and brand new, that those are the folks that tend to come into church plants. So we have some folks who are bored. We have some folks who are kind of like, ah, the church that I was in or was kind of raised in wasn't doing it for me. But that's the smallest category. We have some folks who are brand new who really found us most of the time through our political organizing and our justice work saying, I want to be a part of something that changes the world. And I've seen you in the streets and I've seen you moving politics in our community and like trying to advocate for justice. And I see that that actually comes from a deeper place for each of you than what's happening right here in this moment. And I want to be connected to that. But I, I will say that the vast majority of our community fits into that burned category, whether it's because of their own gender or sexual identity or that of someone they love, whether it's because they are women in the church who have been ostracized for divorcing abusive husbands, whether it's people who just felt like their doubts and questions were not honored in the places that they grew up. We've got some folks who walked away from church and religion and thought that they were doing that for the rest of their lives until they found this community and then said, you know, there might be something profound that I'm, I don't actually want to give up, but I need to find a different way to access it that's, that's healing instead of harming. And that's what they're trying to do here. Your justice work, it it's so clearly such a beautiful way that you seem to be discipling your people. And that really came through in your sermon. And I, I'd love to go ahead and turn to, to talking about your sermon, which is why, why we're here today. Yeah, absolutely. But just before we even get into the justice part of your sermon, you something that really stood out to me was the way that you unpack Palm Sunday at the beginning of your sermon. And you even explained Passover a little bit. And as a pastor of a church who, you know, are people who are bored or burned out by religion, people who have never even heard of High Holy Days or the liturgical seasons, what is it like orienting your community to things like Palm Sunday, Lent, Easter? It's interesting because we have some folks for whom these terms like really don't mean much of anything. And one of the commitments that I've made as a leader in my community is not to assume that anybody knows any of the kind of cultural touch points. I think that that's one of the ways that the church can burn people is just by using language and terminology and reference points that have no meaning to some people. And that's an immediate indicator that they like don't belong. Whereas at Zao, everyone's coming in from a very different background. So Lent might mean something very specific to you, or Lent might mean not really much at all, or Lent might mean something that's harmful that we need to kind of 
unlearn so that we can reapproach it. So every time we engage with something like that, I'm trying to hit at all those levels, right? For the folks who have no idea, for the folks who have a foggy idea or something that means something a lot to them, and for folks that have like some trauma attached to it. So a lot of what we do is break things down and rebuild them from nothing. <laughs> and and that's, you know, it's a lot of work. One of the reasons that my sermons are so long, a lot of times we, you know, we end up just having to to take a pretty significant journey. But even, you know, at the beginning of this Lent season, Ash Wednesday here in Wisconsin was a huge snowstorm. And historically, we've done public ashing. We do traditional ashes and glitter ashes. That's a whole extra thing. But basically, we are out in public in spaces offering a moment of contemplation and reflection on the streets. And that's something that has meant a lot to me and a lot to many members of our community. But when the storm was coming and we were kind of like, is this something that's safe to do, meaningful to do? Our leadership team kind of broke it down. And and I was like, hey, how many of you actually like would participate in this? And some of them, mostly the folks who had grown up Catholic, were like, yes, definitely. Others, many of whom had grown up evangelical or non-religious, were sort of like, ah, this doesn't, I mean, not not really. And then some folks were like, oh, hell no, because I, de- I did grow up with this and it's actually like deeply traumatic. And so I was like, okay, well, what if, uh, what if we approach it differently? And one of our leaders suggested like, hey, some of our churches are doing this on Sunday during service instead. And that was a really interesting moment for me because I was like, okay, when we have these liturgical days that are outside of Sunday service, we bring in folks that already have some amount of meaning attached to it. And mostly the folks whose meaning is like already in an okay place. But a huge part of our work here is to introduce tools and moments and strategies to people who don't have them and to help heal some of the ways that things have been really traumatic. So like for some people, you know, Ash Wednesday has been a time where they are told that they are garbage, that they are worthless, and that they should remember that they're worthless. We don't think that's very healing (laughs) here at Zao and that that's not really how we want to approach Ash Wednesday. And so I was excited about that opportunity and we moved that to Sunday. And again, we, we invited every Everybody to approach Ash Wednesday for the first time. And we broke it down in a different way. And we said, I think this is becoming a more common understanding, but like you are stardust. This is a a memory that your finitude is not all that you are, that you are connected to the fabric of all things. And that when the body that you live in disintegrates, it will not turn to nothing. It will turn back into the stardust from which you came. And that gives us all an opportunity to come in for the first time to make meaning in a new way or to heal something that's been really wounded. That's really beautiful. And I think I had never thought about moving an Ash Wednesday to a day besides Wednesday, but I, I wonder why I am so stuck on certain ideas and, you know, have to continually be deconstructing and reconstructing and, you know, going back. And I appreciate it. Like I've heard Palm Sunday, that scripture, Palm Sunday sermon since I was born. And this one just painted it in a new light because you're not just talking about the scripture, you're talking about the context, the political environment, the misinterpretations of who Jesus is even, right? Like there's a point where you're like, it's not just this precious moments, nice guy that we all love. Like Jesus was maybe some of those things, but also all of this. And so I don't know. I just wonder if you could talk about how did you get to that place of kind of reframing Palm Sunday and why are those pieces so important? When we claim life and freedom and liberation, it comes as a direct threat to those powers of death and oppression who are benefiting off of destruction. So they planned to put him to death. 
they, not the Roman Empire, but they, the religious rulers, who would have been on Jesus' side if they weren't so afraid. You know, it was a little bit of a journey for me. I grew up with a political Jesus. That's one thing that I'm really grateful for. My family of origin was really clear about that. And part of that led me to some of the justice work that I did and have done and continued to do. And there was a moment where I was, it was the the week that I got arrested because I was about to get arrested at the School of the Americas, WINSEC, it's now known as, um, the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, which isn't creepy at all. But yeah, so I was about to get arrested on a military base protesting militarization in Latin America. This was November. No idea why they were preaching Palm Sunday. But there were, I went to a big mass. There were a lot of folks down at that nonviolent protest that were Catholic. And so there was a huge mass, thousands of people. And I remember in this moment, you know, I say I have no idea why they're preaching it, probably because they recognized Palm Sunday as an act of political protest, which is what we were all there to do. The preacher shouted out this idea that we've been given this image of Jesus humble on a donkey. And like, it's not entirely wrong because it was supposed to be an act of humility, but it's entirely stripped of its context, which is a self-reference in scripture to the coronation ceremony of kings. So the donkey was supposed to be a symbol of humility that a newly crowned king was saying like, hey, I know I'm king, but like I'm chill about it. And to only hold on to I'm being chill about this without understanding this very explicit reference to being the king completely alters its meaning. And so I remember in that very critical moment of my life when I was about to cross as an act of uh, political protest into this military base illegally, I would go on to stand trial and then be incarcerated for months, being told for the first time in my life that the donkey wasn't just an act of humility. It was actually an act of really bold proclamation of Jesus's kingship. That felt really important. And then the rest of it, the rest of the analysis really isn't mine. It comes from Borg and Crossan, uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, this incredible book that I recommend anyone um, who's interested read called The Last Week. And when I read The Last Week and I read Palm Sunday, I remember getting so mad. I think I might have even said this in the sermon that it made me angry to learn. I had been to seminary by that point and to learn that there were two processions that day. Jesus's procession coming in from the West, from the kind of poor rural areas where he had been organizing people, and Pontius Pilate and, and Rome's procession in from the East as a display of, of Roman military might. And I was like, that changes everything. Like how, what, what? I was, I'm, I'm still mad talking about it now. I'm still so mad that like, We've been listening to this story, some of us, every year, like once a year, every year for our entire lives. And no one has told us, probably because most of the people telling the story don't know that it was a counter protest, that this, that there was an enormous and important political context for why Jesus is marching in saying, I'm the king. Your power doesn't matter. (laughs) Your military might is nothing. You know, like all of it completely changes when we strip it of all that political and social context to just be about, you know, the hearts of the people shouting Hosanna in that moment and, you know, setting ourselves up to be indicted five, six days later, you know, when, when Jesus is on the cross. That's what people mean when we talk about bringing scripture to life. That's a perfect example of that because this idea of this that we have of, of Jesus, we've been fed such a one dimensional perspective, like you said, and like 
not only are you are you drawing in, you know, your community's context and, and your own justice work, but bringing that to life in its own context is just that's so beautiful. I love that. Well, I just even when you're talking right now, I just find myself. So my dad's always like, if you could make church funny, people would come and you do such a great job of holding humor and gravity and pairing those together. And I don't know, I just wanted to recognize that I feel like we just like dismiss humor so often in church spaces, because it's like, it's serious. It's about saving your soul and getting to heaven and not going to hell. And like, there's this theme throughout the whole sermon of like joy as resistance. I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I think it's hard for people to hold both. And especially when we get to Holy Week, we feel like this tense, I I feel it in my body, like this tense and this anxiety. And I remember that this is the time, but then to remember that it's not one thing, right? Like it's all of the thing. And so I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And so because we are a community of life, because we are a community that follows Jesus, because we declare and believe in Zao, that promise of life, and because we believe that systems of death need to be met with shouts and acclamations of joy and life, we came out too. Humor and laughter are always in relationship to power. I might be showing my Enneagram 8 a little bit here, but humor and and laughter are about revealing relationships of power and shifting the balance of where that energy lies. And so, you know, when things are really difficult, we engage our humor to reorient, to say this is not the only thing that exists, right? When things are really joyous, we use humor to accentuate our feeling of freedom and freewheeling energy and connection. So humor can punch down or it can punch up, right? So some of the humor that our culture has embraced especially in the past, is really punching down, right? Power poking fun at people who have less power. And culturally, we're starting to reexamine that and say like, nope, we are not going to engage in that anymore. or We're not going to accept that anymore. But really powerful humor punches up, which is to say it's people who are poking fun at systems and structures of power that have power over them and undermining them by taking some power back. You know, as a political organizer in my past life, one of the things that we would talk about is that power can stand to be yelled at, but it can't stand to be laughed at. People and institutions of power hate to be ridiculed because it robs them of some of that power. And I think that stoic severity that we associate with the church is actually connected to, it's not exclusively, but it's connected to a history of an abusive institutional power that says, I am the only truth. And you can't laugh at me because that means that you're disrespecting me. And if you're disrespecting me, you're disrespecting God. And so I think being able, especially for those of us who have been harmed by the church and those of us who are trying to deconstruct, being able to poke fun at some of those institutions, some of those misconceptions, some of the inconsistencies and and kind of logical problems within that structure that tried to hold its power so universally gives us some of that freedom back to say, hey, you are not who you pretend to be. You are not God. And God can stand to be laughed at just as God can can take our, our yelling and anger. But those institutions really try and reinforce that they should be taken seriously. And so for me, there is an act of absolute freedom in being able to point out, to juxtapose these kinds of discrepancies in logic or just sort of like humorous shifts in power and to laugh at it and to to reclaim our power as people who are astute observers, who will not be duped, who don't have power in these systems, but actually see the weaknesses in the systems of power. 
And so, you know, I, one of the reasons I actually like hesitated to send this sermon to you all, because in listening back to it, I noted that at one point I like paraphrased Jesus as saying, suck it, Caesar. (laughs) And I'm like, is that, you know, that's something like (laughs) that might not go over well. Suck it, Caesar might not be the the way that most churches would want to paraphrase Jesus. But, but in my context, in my like very queer and trans, very deconstructed, very like harmed by the church and trying to find the truth and healing power of Jesus church, like in our context, being able to point out in this kind of humorous, explicitly disrespectful way that Jesus is not taking seriously the power of the dominating forces that Jesus is saying, like, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's it's funny to see you fall on your face. Right. There is that kind of subversive taking power back that allows us then, I think, the freedom to more critically question those systems of power that we don't have when we're not allowed to to see it that way and to laugh. And you doing that gives your community permission to do that too. And I'm sure that's so freeing for them. You talk about listening back to your sermon and I'm curious, you know, this was preached in 2019. That really wasn't that long ago, but the world is so different now. I'm curious how you would have preached it in 2020, you know, in 2021 or 22, or even today. Well, this is what's interesting about the liturgical year to me, is that I do, and I have, and I will, right? We get to revisit this story every year and approach it in a different way, approach it from from our particular context. In reviewing some of the other years since, and the reason I wanted to talk about this one is because I feel like for our community, it was laying the groundwork. And in the subsequent years, we were becoming a little bit more established. You know, in 2020, that was one of the last sermons I preached in person. And it was, honestly, it was a better sermon, but it was built on the understanding that we established in 2019, right? It was, we had a collective conversation in 2019 about Jesus and Palm Sunday in opposition to the Roman Imperial Guard that gave us then the platform to talk about really a a more nuanced understanding, which in that year was the way that Jesus, you know, the triumphal entry is juxtaposed against Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and that the freedom and joy that we express in the streets as we fight for justice is held in tension with our grief that things are not the way they ought to be. And our confidence that things will be healed has to also hold room for the fact that it's not healed now. And saying that we know that Jesus will rise does not change the fact that we have to watch him suffer and die. You know, so I think for for me, kind of looking through this little time capsule of like how I preached Palm Sunday is really more a reflection on the the growth of our local community. You know, we get into the pandemic in 2021 and I don't even remember uh, what it was about uh, exactly, but I do know that it was a sermon I preached to a camera and that that was harder and different. There was just kind of a, a greater remove. And then when I got back in person with my community in 2022, then we actually spent the whole of Lent talking about sin and trying to understand and deconstruct and reconstruct a theology of sin as a community that had been deeply deeply abused by that concept and told that like our very nature was sinful or that we were garbage human beings or we should be ashamed of the ways that we fall short. And so we were doing healing work. That year, we 
really didn't engage Palm Sunday in the same way at all. For me, the beauty of the liturgical year is it gives you an opportunity. I believe this is true about literally everything in our tradition. My frame of reference is always when Jesus is getting in trouble for healing on the Sabbath. And his response is, the Sabbath was made for human beings. Human beings were not made for the Sabbath. If your ox fell in a hole on the Sabbath, would you just like leave it there? There is this conversation that he's introducing saying like ritual, church worship, the liturgical calendar, like these are gifts given to us to facilitate our connection to God, to ourselves and to one another. So we should engage in them to the extent that they do that. But if they don't, then we should tend to the wounds that we have that need healing right now. So I really, I saw that happen in 2022, where it was like, okay, we have this gorgeous story of Protest Sunday that energizes us and moves us to the streets, but that's not what we need right now. We need something else. And so I love that that we get to have that flexibility to engage when it feels healing and to just set it aside when it's not what we need. I love talking about Jesus, which is great because I'm a pastor, so that works out for me. But I, I wonder if we could just talk about the person of, of Jesus, because you talk about it in the sermon, like we, we had already mentioned about maybe this idea that some of us have of Jesus, and you paint him in the, this light of like revolutionary, organizer, yeah. planner, yeah. human. If you could talk about your version of Jesus now and how that has kind of shifted. And I think in that also, or also tips for people to do that too. Like, I think people desperately want the version of Jesus that is human and all those things that you name. And it's like hard to get there sometimes. Yeah. In, yeah, in the sermon, I make this kind of reference to a collective joke we have at Zao, which is Precious Moments Jesus. The other one that people like to, to shout out is Blonde Blue-Eyed Surfer Jesus. But these are our cultural touchstones for the ways that Jesus's image has been twisted and maligned to serve the needs of empire. And I think for me, the, the most important thing is disentangling what is a cultural image of Jesus as an archetype versus what is Jesus as we see him depicted in scripture. And it's really wild because anytime a church proclaims itself to be Bible believing as like one of the first things they say about themselves, it's always a little bit of a red flag, right? Partly because the implication is that other people, other churches do not believe the Bible, but also it usually means something very particular about what they mean in the Bible. And so we use very precise language that means something similar, but like we say, if you come to Zao, the first thing that you'll hear about us is that we are Jesus-rooted, justice-centered, and radically inclusive. It's who we are. It's who we've been. That's who I, I, I came to Milwaukee with that kind of triptych on my heart and was like, I don't know how this is going to play out, but this is what we're doing. What's beautiful is that every Sunday you have a different member of the community introducing the community and articulating what it means to them. So you'll hear different people articulate this differently. But for me, when I'm the one up there, I say, being Jesus-rooted means we believe in the Jesus that we see depicted in the Gospels, who is a brown-skinned, radical, revolutionary peasant who organized the masses against the imperial rule of the Roman Empire. And we see Jesus as a Palestinian Jewish kind of rural kid who was probably a day laborer, maybe illiterate, and changed the world. So I think all of those particularities of who Jesus is and identity really matter. And then we, we get into the teachings. Jesus is not nice. <laughs> like in Wisconsin, nice means something very particular, right? Jesus is not Wisconsin nice. You know, Jesus is cursing at people all the time. Like literally, woe to you is like, is like, screw you. 
people who, you know, and, and he's broad and sweeping with it. Woe to you who are rich, right? Like there's, there's a lot in there, especially in the gospel of Luke, where Jesus is just like calling people out. You hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. Like Jesus is not like toning it down for people's comfort, which is not to say that we should all be like rude or whatever, but that feels like a big flashing light to me that the cultural identity of Jesus that we have in, you know, Western and a particularly U.S. American Christianity has gotten something very wrong. I think about this political concept of Santa Clausification. This is usually like most prototypically applied to the figure of Martin Luther King Jr. But it's the idea that we take a real historical figure like MLK or Jesus and we kind of whitewash over, particularly with the tenets of white culture and white supremacy and, and domination, the history of like why those folks were executed or assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was one of the most hated people in the United States while he was living. And now the military will tweet MLK quotes on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And it's like this very bizarre, right? But the way that they're able to do that, Martin Luther King famously, like <laughs> deeply publicly anti-military, like the way that, that we've gotten to the point where now the military is quoting him is because MLK as a figure, his radical message has been completely erased and replaced with the most palatable, least controversial version of itself and turned into, and this is where we get Santa Clausification, right? It becomes this very palatable kind of cartoon version, mythology archetype that just is there to make everyone feel better about status quo and like feel better about the way things are right now. So it can be very comforting, but it's incredibly shallow and erases the radical nature of of the original message. So we can see historically how that's happened to Martin Luther King Jr. or Rosa Parks or right. But I think that it's really important for followers of Jesus to examine how that has happened to Jesus and the ways that we have been taught to interpret Jesus as someone who is just telling us all to get along and be nice to one another and how Radically different, that is, from the man who said, I, I did not come to, to unite, but to divide by the sword. We think that Jesus is for everyone, and Jesus is for everyone in sort of the ontological sense and the like sense of solidarity and freedom and salvation into eternity. And Jesus did not have a problem picking sides. Like we see that with the woman accused of adultery. We see that anytime Jesus breaks the law, like Jesus is really clear whose side he's on, and it's the side of the marginalized. And so when we have a culture that says, oh, Jesus doesn't pick sides, that's another blinking sign, another red flag that like, we've actually drifted pretty far from the scriptures at that point. And so for me, naming and ridiculing that cultural image as precious moments, Jesus, blue eyed, blonde haired surfer, Jesus, kumbaya, why don't we all just get along, Jesus, helps to hold up the contrast of the radical, revolutionary, confrontational Jesus of the scriptures. Every once in a while, we interview a preacher where we get multiple sermons in the conversation, which is just because the, your sermon is on audio. This is just a personal question. Like, are you using a manuscript? Are you memorizing? Are you just you've done your research and you know it in your heart? Like, how do you preach? Yeah, I think a lot of times I'm just wilding out up there. You are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, so certainly the one that we're talking about today, when I started reading the transcript, 
because I read the transcript before I did the audio and I was like, this is a mess <laughs> because transcriptually it's disjointed. Some of my sentences are half sentences, but it's because I'm having a conversation with the room. And so once you go to audio, it feels a lot better because it's a conversation. And for me, I think studying this, steeping myself in the scriptures, coming up with kind of a general narrative outline or, or journey and then showing up, that's when I'm at my best. That was another interesting observation of mine to go through the backlog and see how my preaching changed on Palm Sunday year to year. And the reason that I like barely even engaged 2021 is because preaching to a camera, I didn't have a room to have a conversation with. And so those sermons are almost entirely manuscripted. They're not trash, but like, <laughs> they're not the same. It's not me at my best. And I think even coming out of COVID, my stuff was a little bit tighter. And when I say tighter, I mean like my outlines would have like sometimes full phrases or sentences rather than like keywords. And I'm just now a year into being in person starting to really let some of that go and free flow again. But that's how I like to preach. And speaking of it being a conversation, you you end this sermon in particular with a mix of these chants that are prayerful, full, full of protests. Tell, tell us more about that. Hosanna! Hosanna! Yeah, I mean, so for me, it's really about dwelling in and embodying the scriptures. And again, this is the invitation of the liturgical calendar, as far as I understand it, that we are invited to walk through the story, to move together through a memory of a narrative of events. And what happens in this narrative is that the people start to shout that the rocks would cry out. Like there's this kind of kinetic energy in that moment. And the way it's expressed by the people is by shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And when I bring that memory, that collective memory into my body, I am transported immediately into the streets, immediately into the movements for black lives, immediately into the fight for, you know, reproductive freedom, immediately into these efforts towards liberation for queer and trans people and beyond. So what comes up in my body is this like, yeah, like what does Hosanna mean? And Hosanna is this word that means a lot of things. It means salvation now and also thank you for saving us. So like that's kind of how we got in the next year to holding that tension, that like crying out, that means we will be saved and we have been saved, which to me, it brings up another chant that we've chanted in service before. My favorite, which is we believe that we will win. And that's, that's a chant of the streets. That is a, is a confident declaration of the victory that comes at the end of all things, which to me is spiritual and religious and eschatological. And embedded in that is this recognition that we haven't won yet, that actually we are still living under oppression. That shout, that embodied moment, that energy that flows through the people in that narrative must be expressed collectively and at the top of our voice, shouting from from the whole of our lungs. So we did that together. And I, and I think, you know, for me, it wasn't that different from growing up, waving my palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest except there was a little bit of a different fire behind it because it meant something different to those of us who had been in the streets. And we were not holding up palm branches. We were holding up signs that said variously, you know, there were like the shout outs, Hosanna was one of the signs. One of the signs was not my Caesar. But then the other ones were Black Lives Matter, love is love, trans is beautiful. You know, these these other things that we need to proclaim and waving those in the air and shouting Hosanna, shouting, we believe that we will win, shouting whose streets, our streets. 
and participating in the memory and expression of what it means to be in political protest and moving towards a world of, of liberation. Your community and the work that you and Cameron are doing really paints such a beautiful glimpse of what I think heaven is like, this liberation for all people, the whole of inclusivity and welcome and justice and joy. And so I really would like to hear from you. We kind of asked this question as a closing each time, but what is your hope for the future of the church? My hope for the future of the church is that we would remember who we are called to be. You know, there's a lot of conversation about the church dying right now. And I'm deeply unworried, not just because I don't think that the church will like die, but also because I think that there are aspects of the church that are dying that that need to because they have strayed so far from the gospel. I think when we look historically and we look even to the early church, right? Even the the biggest megachurches love to point to Acts and say like, oh, look, we're just like them. Except that in Acts, the church was underground. The church was under direct threat. And it wasn't under direct threat because, you know, the devil hates Christians. <laughs> it was under direct threat because the radical message of Jesus was anti-empire and anti-domination. And so the occup- the literal occupying forces were pressing down on the culture, which was trying then to control from within any expressions of dissent. And so I think that if the church is going to be faithful we are going to have to be countercultural, not just by wearing like WWJD bracelets. Like that, that's what I grew up with was this like very timid, ridiculous idea that we could somehow push back against the culture by being extra modest. When we take seriously what countercultural actually meant to the Jesus who rallied his people to march in opposite, like coming into Jerusalem from opposite sides of the Roman imperial guard. That's a very different counterculture, right? That's a very different way to oppose empire than by saying, like, let's all consider ways to be less rude to one another. Or like, let's all decide collectively that the best way to follow Jesus is to control young girls' bodies, right? Like, those things are not actually like counter empire. And so to say, like, that the church is dying, I think what we're seeing is that the institution of the church that has upheld empire is no longer able to hold up under scrutiny. And we've got generations of people coming up saying like, yeah, I don't actually need to be a part of that. And so my hope for the church is that enough of us could find a connection to the scriptures and a connection to the teachings of Jesus to continue to build and cultivate these truly countercultural communities that are willing to put a lot on the line to oppose empire and domination and evil. And that that would be a through line towards the kingdom, towards liberation for all people. And I think that that prophetic imagination of saying, like, what could this look like? And then bringing it into being to the best of our ability. That's the church at its best. Amen. Jonah, thank you so much for your time, your words, your ministry, your example, your work is just such an inspiration to me. And I I know that our community is going to be inspired listening to this as well. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the kind words. And thank you for letting me be a part of this. I'm really excited for this season. Thank you so much for listening. Together, we are what God looks like. The Collective Table is supported by San Diego United Methodist Church in Encinitas, California, and the California Pacific Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. A big thank you to our producer and content editor, Claire Watson. If you'd like to financially support the work of The Collective Table, please visit us at thecollectivetable.org. There you can also find out more about who we are and view past episodes. 
Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, YouTube channel, and newsletter, and keep up with us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Collective